0: I have been in a lot of prisons and jails over the years as a reporter not serving time and also as a volunteer going all the way back to just after high school. And it's interesting. I've been around a lot of people who have been in jails or prisons and people who have gotten out. And I don't hear many with the startling clarity that this week's guest has. Jackie Harwood owns her story. She owns the worst of it. The amazing thing about her is her insight and that she did not return and that she and her husband remained married and that now she's such a great mom. Uh, I would call her the unlikely inmate, but then again, really not. Jackie Harwood.
1: You know, some people just shouldn't be parents, (laughs) and he's never going to be the idea of what, you know, I think a father should be.
2: This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard.
0: Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. I met Jackie Harwood when she was waiting tables, at least part-time, at the Park Road Soda Shop. Now she works for uh, someone in the healthcare profession. That kind of led to her getting in trouble earlier. Um, She went to jail for drugs, and... Nowadays, people like Dr. Gabor Mate look at substance use disorder, drug addiction, ever what you want to call it, as a maladaption to trauma. And she certainly had a ton of that, starting before she was even born. But you should hear this, I, I knew her at the Park Road Soda Shop, and also her, you'll hear her refer to her sister-in-law, who owns the diners and I really want to talk to her. Her name is Amanda, but uh, Jackie was good enough to tell me her story and something she has never really done before. And I find it interesting that in this case, the so-called Department of Corrections actually worked. Jackie Harwood. Where were you born?
1: Uh, I was born um, in San Antonio, Texas, Lackland Air Force Base.
0: Uh, for your mother, you're number what of how many? Where are you in the birth order?
1: I am number two. I am the middle.
0: Number two out of?
1: Three.
0: Okay. Brother, sister, one of each? Yep. Uh,
1: one older brother and a younger sister.
0: Now, I don't know this, but do you have kids?
1: I have two boys.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and how old are they?
1: Uh, 16 and 22.
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: Yeah. Wonderful.
0: So you can't tell them anything now?
1: No, yes. They're much taller than me. (laughs) No, they still have to listen though. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) What, if anything, did your mother tell you about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery that helped you when you became a mom?
1: My birth story is kind of a traumatic um, time for my mother. We honestly never really talked about it much so I have a separate father than the one I grew up with she was married to my biological father um and it was a tumultuous relationship so she was actually trying to leave him um when she found out she was pregnant with me um super abusive you know drug related things physical abuse um, and so basically she was on the fence of whether to carry me to term or not, because, um, it was just a very physically abusive relationship. Um, her and I, and my father that I grew up with, we actually don't really have a relationship. We haven't really spoken in quite a long time, but when we were, um, when I was growing up in the home, um, whenever I would bring it up and ask about my biological father, it kind of, I guess it triggered something in, in her she never saved pictures. Um, the only reason I even know what he looks like is because my grandmother, before she passed, sent me their wedding album. So um she actually had to go into hiding from
0: him. Have you ever met him? No. Mm-mm.
1: So for according to what she's told me, um, he tried to um, I guess I I I kind of use humor. I kind of get I laugh when I get nervous, but <laughs> she She always would tell me that um, he actually tried to kill myself, my brother and her um, when I was a baby. And that's why she went into hiding with us. Um, But, yeah, I really don't know much. Um, But I've definitely thought about it over the years, Um, you know, thought about maybe trying to find him and see if he's still out there, see if he's changed his life around, you know, half of me wants, wants that. But then the other half I'm apprehensive because of what he did. It's kind of scary, (laughs) you know, taking a chance with something like that.
0: How was she able to protect you?
1: She met my uh, father that I grew up with my, so he ended up actually adopting myself and my brother. Um, My brother and I are fully biological um, siblings, and then my sister. Um, she's technically half. I only ever remember him raising me. I don't remember anything else besides him. Um, and so I guess he was kind of the protector in that situation. So she leaned into him and depended on him a lot. Um, you know, to protect us. And what the funny thing was about it was he he ended up actually being the biggest abuser in my life growing up. Whenever. Uh, the abuse would occur growing up she would always use that excuse you don't know what he did for us it it was like one traumatic situation to another kind of you know covered up in a knight in shining armor type of package
0: were you ever able to find help to recover fully from that abuse
1: prison is kind of where i found the help um when i always say prison was the greatest blessing of my life, because if I had not gone to prison, I probably would be dead. I received some therapy, not as much of therapy as I would have liked to have, but I definitely did a lot of classes, trauma classes, therapy type of, you know, whatever they offered, I would take advantage of. You know, it's odd because you have your abuser, but then you still love that abuser because you feel like, well, it's your father. And so it's like this protective, like protector type of element where it's, it's the strangest thing. So it's, it really does a number on you mentally, you know, to, to kind of grapple with that. Um, But Yes, I would say really in prison is really where I did the work on myself to kind of put the puzzle pieces together um, to try to figure out why I went down the path I did with the opiates. Um, I I will say this: um, I also went through a molestation situation as well when I was about five or six years old, um, not by him but by um, an older child in the neighborhood where we were when we were living in New York, and I I definitely know that was kind of probably the catalyst to a lot of things. Well, even really as a baby, um, you know, they say when you're in utero and your mother's going through, you know, something traumatic, the baby really feels that as well. So I just think from the start of life, I was just, you know, born with trauma, went through trauma. Um, and then I never received therapy for the molestation. And I think that was due to, you know, my dad not wanting uh, his business to be out there for what he was doing to us children in the home. But you compartmentalize a lot of things, you know, grow up, you kind of shove it down, you shove it down. Like I'm strong, you know, I'm just gonna, you just deal with it. It's just life. But then, you know, it's gonna manifest in one way or another
0: Did your adoptive dad, who was really your stepdad, uh, Mm -hmm. was this physical abuse?
1: Yes, um, it was physical, it was emotional, it was verbal, uh, a lot of control. Um, He could you know, he, military man, and he ran that house like, you know, we were in the military. um, My mom as well, so he was, you know, the same way with her. I never saw him hit her, but there was definitely a lot of things that were thrown at her a lot of verbal abuse. Um, I would say that my brother and myself received the brunt of it. Um, My baby sister, she received some of the verbal abuse, but I kind of honestly always thought in my mind because, you know, she was biologically his, maybe that's why, you know, she didn't get it as bad. Um, But yeah, I mean, I remember being a little girl, and just being called horrible names for just you know nothing like um i've i've had broken fingers i've had bruises um i've been pushed through glass windows um i mean yeah it was it was pretty bad like um i'd wake up i remember like waking up in the morning for school and he would do like bed checks to make sure the beds were um correctly made and if they weren't he would just take the mattress and the bed and just rip all my drawers out and destroy everything and make me put it back together. And if it still wasn't the way he wanted it, he would do it again. I mean, that was just the type of person he was, but um, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, but what's weird about it though, um, you're, you're able to kind of take that stuff, even when you're going through it and in a way, like forgive the person because it's your father. Right. And it wasn't all bad. I mean, I would, You know, I think growing up, I made a lot of excuses for it um, just because there were a lot of things that he would be supportive on. Like um, I embarked on a modeling journey when I was about 13 and he was so, you know, so proud of me for that and so supportive. Or when I was in the marching band and but it was almost like um, an earning of his love. That's I always felt like I would always needing to do something to get that approval and to earn it. Um, And even into adulthood when, before our relationship ended, um, I remember being like 22 years old and being married and having my son and going to his house for Christmas and, and just being excited about, I remember one Christmas we bought him a big screen TV and it was just like you know, giving him gifts, like to get approval, to get love. It was never just giving. I mean, he would show you love as long as you were doing what he wanted to or wanted you to. But the minute you weren't, um, it was, you know, he would take it away. So, you know, that definitely did a number on me, you know, for male role models in my life, you know, just feeling like you always had to do something to earn that love um, from from a man, because that's how I thought it worked, you know.
0: How did the relationship end with him?
1: I actually left home at 16. Um, He kicked me out of the home. Um, I had met my husband when I was 16 at Food Lion. And I was sneaking around to, to meet up with him and things of that nature. And, you know, my dad kind of caught on to that. And it came to a head because I think about the age of 16 is when I started to feel a little bit of strength in myself so let me find a way out and had and we didn't talk until probably Let's see. Uh, I was about 22 years old. I would say about 22 is when we kind of reconnected. I'd always kind of talk to my mom. We we kind of would keep in touch. Um, he he forbid her to have a relationship with me, so she was actually sneaking around to have one. And then I had my son, my first son. And then about 22 years old, um, he decided he wanted to be involved in our lives again. And then I'd say. Uh, several years passed. You know, it felt like we had mended fences, and then we had another falling out because my sister um, got engaged to her fiance, and he is of um the Muslim religion, and my dad did not agree with that, and so essentially he gave me a choice. He told me that either I would be a part of her life and support her on her marriage, or I could have him in my life. And I chose her because, you know, she wasn't making me choose, you know, and so it's like, I mean, it's just insane to me. Um, But I have found I am so grateful, as funny as that sounds, I have just come to terms with it. You know, some people just shouldn't be parents. <laughs> and he's never gonna be the idea of what, you know, I think a father should be. It's almost like it's worse to have him in my life than to not have him in my life because there's a lot of heartache and drama that comes along with it. Um, so I'm actually very happy that we are not in each other's lives um, just because he has not done any changing. He's never taken accountability for anything he's ever done. I think it's just with his personality. He's a my way or the highway type of person. And, um, you know, it's just, just, it's a lot of heartache to have him in my life
0: did your mother remain married to him?
1: Yes, she is still with him. We do not have a relationship. I'll say this. I, I've had a lot of empathy for my mother, you know, as far as feeling like, okay, she's a victim of this too. I can forgive her um, for not, uh, you know, not stepping in when the abuse would happen because she, she seemed just as scared as of him as we were. Um, But she seems to be okay with it. I mean, she'll send us birthday cards on the down low. I mean, we're not allowed to call the house or go by or anything of that. But it's like she's sneaking around to try to have um, a relationship that's actually more hurtful to be honest with you. Um, and as bad as this sound, my husband and I always talk about this, that when my dad passes, that will probably be the time that her and I will probably mend fences, um, and have a relationship again. Um, just because he, he won't allow it. It's like, she almost needs a man in her life, um, to feel whole. Um, and you know, what's crazy is she's a, I mean, she has a great career, you know, she makes great money. She could support herself. It's a mind control thing. Um, he's, she's very mentally dependent on him to live her life. She feels like she can't make a move without him giving her permission. Um, And it, you know, and it is sad to see. I never wanted my children to be scared of me the way I was scared of my dad. So we've always had a very open relationship. My kids talk to me. Uh, We talk about everything. That's one good thing that definitely came out of it.
0: Where did you move when you were 16? You're kicked out of the home.
1: Yeah, so I actually uh, lived with a friend for a little bit because her parents were aware of some of the abuse that was going on in my home. And then I actually ended up moving in with my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. Um, He was a few years older than me and had his own place. For me, it was my first taste of freedom. So I moved in with him and we've been together ever since.
0: How did you decide to get married to him?
1: From the beginning, I was head over heels crazy for him, to be honest. Um, It was probably looking back on it now is definitely a a savior type of complex because I was in such a a dire situation that, you know, like I just was gaga for him. I just felt like he just saved me. Um, I did get pregnant at 17 and had my first son at 18. So he was four months old when we got married.
0: Well, I'm amazed you're still married. Um, Yeah, me too. I'm just kidding. To to what do you attribute the longevity of the marriage?
1: Well, I can say we're both very stubborn. We both have that loyalty factor. I I don't know, because I'm I'm not gonna lie and say there definitely hasn't been lots of moments where, you know, it's come close to divorce or separation, especially during the addiction years that I went through and the prison thing that was You know, we almost ended our marriage over the, you know, that whole situation. I always tell people, I think it took us about a good 18 years of marriage to really just get it. Stop trying to change each other, you know, accepting the person for who they are. Um, I have a sense of gratefulness that I didn't have before. You have to choose it every day. We just don't want to be unhappy. We just would rather just let things go. <laughs> let it go. It's really not that big of a deal. <laughs> so well,
0: that's beautiful. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned opioids. That's yes. a broad category of narcotics. Yeah. How yep. how were you introduced? What specifically were you introduced to?
1: I broke a tailbone and started out in hydrocoding. Yes. Yeah. That was very painful.
0: Plenty of people get hydrocodone after dental surgery or anything else and they're not predisposed to abuse it. When did you realize that this is not just a drug to take care of a temporary pain?
2: Um, Well,
1: honestly, I can't really pinpoint that exact moment, but what I do remember about it is, you know it it affected me when i would take an opiate like even i remember when i had my babies like i can remember being in the hospital and getting that after childbirth and being sent home with the prescription for it and i just remember it was like when i when i would take it it would change my personality in a way that it felt like nirvana to me almost like I felt like I could be social and I could talk to people and be my true self. And like, you know, nothing could stop me. And I could just, you know, it was just like this feeling of like euphoria. Um, And so the tailbone incident, because, you know, back in those days, it was easy refills. You could just call the doctor's office and be like, yep, I'm still hurting. Need some more of those pills. And, you know, they'd call them in, no problem. Um, you know, wasn't as controlled back then. Of course, for a while it was for the pain, but, you know, eventually the pain goes away. But I liked who I was on them. I liked how I could interact with people when I was on them. Um, and just that feeling of, I don't know, like I was flying and I could do anything, Um And, you know, it was great for a long time till it wasn't, (laughs) you know, that, that doesn't last for forever. (laughs) So, but, and then it became a dependency, you know, I, I couldn't function without a, um, but it, it grew. It wasn't just hydrocodone. I figured out, um, you know, you could go to a pain, a pain doctor. Um, and you could get stronger opiates and it was a progression. I mean, I was, I would say my addiction was a good eight or nine years probably. And it was just a progression to, to hard, harder things like oxycotton. You know, I had a pretty good story. I could, I could tell them about my old injury and I could get them pretty easily.
0: There are plenty of people who are addicted, who do not go to prison. What led to yeah. you going to prison?
1: So um, I um, ended up working in the medical field. I was working for a plastic surgeon in Mooresville and uh, I was a surgery coordinator and um, we would have prescription pads. And so before uh, like a pre-op type of situation, when a patient would come in, I would go over their pre-op information with them. Um, You know, he would sign off. On the, I watched him, um, I could copy it. Um, and so I started filling my own prescriptions. Um, and I got away with it for quite a long time, to be honest with you. I'm really surprised at how long I was able to get away with it. I'm so lucky that I did not die from it. I was up to probably 20 to 25 oxycodone a day. I was going to the pharmacy every three days and filling 90 pills to the point when I got caught for it and the detectives came to my house to talk to me about it. Um, You know, they thought I was selling pills. Um, So I was actually the charges that I actually um, were brought up on was a trafficking charge because of the amount of pills that I had obtained for about two years, you know, and I would tell myself, you know, I would fight it so hard. I would run out of my pills the night before and I would lay there in bed all night and just think about it like, okay, you know, like, you know, this is wrong. You know that if you get caught, you're going to be in big trouble for it. But, you know, I'd wake up the next morning and that sickness would set in like, I, I just couldn't function without it. I would still go to work on them and go to my kids' baseball games, but without the pills, I couldn't. I would be violently sick. Um, and so it had grown to be that terrible um and i went into work one day and the doctor confronted me about it and um of course was fired and then i went into a rehab facility pretty immediate within 2 days of that i had to call my husband um of course which that was very scary um cuz he knew like he knew that i was addicted to opiates. We had many fights about it, um, but he didn't know what I was doing to get them. He thought I was just going to doctors and getting prescriptions. And so when I had to call him um, and tell him exactly what I had been doing and I had been caught, um, you know, I was I was really scared of how upset he was going to be, but he actually handled it pretty well, a lot better than I thought it would be. And Amanda, my sister-in-law, the soda shop, she was a big hand in that, too. So we went over, I remember going to her house with him um, and she got on the phone and found a rehab for me and I was there the next day. Um, but it was still a struggle that rehab didn't take. <laughs> you know, it took me a while
0: to actually conquer it. Did you plead guilty to a charge?
1: Yes, um I did. Um I did end up pleading guilty. Um it was multiple charges um in uh, char- Charlotte Mecklenburg and Cabarrus County because I was getting prescriptions filled at pharmacies in each county. Um so it was multiple charges because you know each time you're filling a prescription illegally, that's a charge. I think I ended up with 18 to 20 felony charges, Um, but, um, of course, got a lawyer. um, Had to go to court in both counties, um, Cabarrus and Charlotte Meck, to answer for, you know, both counties for what I had done. Um, But I ended up um, pleading guilty and, um, you know, taking a deal. I did 18 months of prison time.
0: Where did you serve? What prison?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, I was moved around about 14 times so i was quite in a lot of them um so when you go into prison initially you go to what they call like the main fa- main facility that was in raleigh um and then i was in another facility in troy north carolina and then i was in Noose, um which is near the beach um and so it was three facilities altogether but when i say 13 14 times within the prisons themselves they can move you to different you know parts of it so they'll just wake you up in the middle of the night and all of your belongings are in, in a little locker and you throw them in a trash bag and you you know move You know, you don't know where you're going, you know, no questions asked, and they just move you in the middle of the night. So it was three different facilities because of the overpopulation of women's prisons, just because of the drug and opiate situation that's going on. The women's prisons are filling up fast, which, you know, is unusual for, for you know, the women's side of things. So, you know, I think that the state just was trying to find space for people. And so that's why you would get moved around a lot.
0: How old were your boys when you went to prison, and how did they handle it? Yeah,
1: this? so my older son was 16, and then Josh, the younger one, he was in fifth grade, so he was 10 or 11 at the time. Um, honestly, I just it felt like a dream to me. To be honest with you, um, I just remember going through the motions of everything because it was just it. You know, I knew. I knew that it was happening, that I was having to go to prison, but it still felt surreal. Like I like so I had a really hard time like talking about it. My husband actually was the one who told them. Um And then, you know, we kind of all sat down as a family. And then, you know, I just said that basically i broke the law and i have to pay for those mistakes and so i was going to be going away to prison i was honest with them about it um and you know they didn't really say much at the time i think it, they it was shock for them i think they were in shock i mean obviously you know we were all kind of in shock uh, my husband as well but i don't really remember them saying much about it to be honest with you at the time um you know but I've always been open with them about it. So we've definitely talked a lot about it since then. You know, my older one's a lot more private. He's more introverted. I don't know. He's he's never really asked too many questions about it. And then my younger son and I, he's he's a lot more extroverted. So we've had a lot of talks about it, a lot of talks about drugs. Um, And the beautiful thing about it is as traumatic as it was, because of what I've gone through, it's, kind of steered them in the complete opposite direction. They want nothing to do with any of that. And so I would say that's one thing that I have been grateful for. They're very aware that, you know, addiction runs very strong in my uh, my side of the family. Addiction is very strong on my husband's side of the family with alcoholism. And so we've talked to them a lot about just, you know, hey, you're predisposed to this and it only takes that one thing to open Pandora's box, you know. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of been more the angle I've taken with it with them is just, you know, not sugarcoating it, but just being honest about it. But to be honest with you, like I said, during that time, I don't remember them saying much at all. Of course, you know, there were tears and, you know, that was, it was just, it felt almost like a dream. Um, I was just I think we were just all in a state of shock, to be
0: honest with you. Did your husband and the boys come and visit you at all?
1: Uh no. Um, my husband, um, so I would say that's kind of one of the times or we almost got divorced. Um, so his approach with the situation was he didn't want the boys um i guess seeing me in that capacity um he was just very dead set against bringing them to see me because he um just didn't want them to see me like that you know and and i can understand that now like during that time of course it was hurtful um but i couldn't really blame him because I had made those decisions to put myself in there and, you know, left him out here to be a single parent. And, you know, so I just, you know, I would have liked to see them, but I don't blame him for it. um, Just because he handled it the best he knew how to do. I think, in order for him to get through those almost two years, he had to compartmentalize it. He had to kind of put me out of his mind to be able to get through it. Um, of course, like we would talk on the phone and things of that nature, but it was very tumultuous that he was very angry. He was very angry, um, you know, for the choices that I had made. Um, so it, it was, it was definitely a rough time. It was still hurtful to me because I felt like, you know, okay, well, I'm in the lowest moment of my life. So, you know, to have him support me would have been amazing. Um, just because it's, you know, it's a lonely, it's a lonely place to be. Um, but you know, we, we somehow worked it out when I, when I came home, everything changed and our marriage got a lot better after that.
0: How were, you able to forgive and how was he able to forgive?
1: Um, I think because we were so close to losing everything, you know, it was a wake up call of how close we really did come to our family breaking up. And so I think When I was away, I think he did a lot of work on himself as well. So he changed a lot of things about himself in the way that I had been working on myself and changed a lot of things about myself. So when we did come back together, it was like we were almost different people, but versions of ourselves that we needed to be to have a better marriage. Um, And so we know of course we had lots of discussions about it but we were just able to leave it in the past and move on. I had to like work through that stuff and stop shoving it down or it was never going to get better. And I think um that's
0: absolutely what saved our marriage. Particularly everything. in particularly in men's prisons. Mhm. Some- some people say it's easier to get drugs in the prison than outside oh. the prison. So, Absolutely. So why didn't you relapse in prison? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'll say this. The first three months I did. Um, so in women's prisons, um, Suboxin is the biggest thing in the prison because that's the easiest thing to get in. Um, and it's a big business in there, big business in there. Uh, a lot of the prison guards, prison staff were in on it. Um, a lot of them are the ones bringing the drugs in. Um, and because they're making a lot of extra money on the side, I mean, it, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So, you know, it's easy money. Um, but the first three months that I went in, um, I definitely got my hands on that. I didn't know how to cope. I really wasn't even completely clean going into prison, to be honest with you. Um, I was still on like Ambien drinking alcohol because especially going through the whole pro the judicial process with going to court and then about three months. And I just remember I had this experience where I was walking in the prison yard, And I don't know if I don't know what it was to me. I think it was the Lord, to be honest with you. I felt like something like someone was speaking to me and it was like this light bulb moment. Like, you know, you're in here for the things that you were doing, that these drugs, right? And you're in here with the same behavior. So what was the point of all of this? You know, are you planning to go home and continue this behavior? You know, you've put your children through this traumatic thing. You're away from your family. You're, your husband's a single parent. Your children, you're missing out on your children's lives for two years, and how disappointing would it be for them for you to come home and be that same person, you know? And so I just had this moment where I was just determined and I was like, I'm not going home that same woman. I'm going to make a different choice and do what I need to do to figure my stuff out, to figure out how to conquer this thing and go go home and be the mother that my children need me to be and be the wife that my husband needs me to be because I was tired of it too. Like it was, I, I didn't want something controlling my life anymore in that way. And just from that point on, I just was like, not doing it anymore and i did everything i could possibly do to get myself help in prison which is really hard to do um, because the services it's really hard to get services there the the government the states don't look at addiction like a mental health issue so the funding is not there in the way that it needs to be you know you don't wake up one day and you're like i want to be an addict you know it's a progression that happens until you can't control it anymore I, I didn't want to come back to prison either. That was part of it. I met a lot of women in there where prison was a revolving door for them, where it was just a lifestyle that, you know, they seemed used to it. And it was like a party, like, hey, friends, like, good to see you. Like they all knew each other. And I just w- remember thinking, how sad is that? I just wanted something different. I knew that I had potential for something more and that um, I had to write a lot of letters to like the warden of the prison, to the um, staff to try to get myself into programs. They had a drug program in there that they at first denied me because they said my problem wasn't as bad as other people's. And I'm like thinking, I was taking 25 oxycodone a day. You know, I would take five to seven Ambien at night just to come down, you know, which is Crazy that I even did that. But I'm like, what do you mean? That doesn't qualify. That's a problem, <laughs> you know.
0: Your sister-in-law Amanda is a very religious person, spiritual person. Yes. Um mm-hmm. uh, are you a very spiritual person?
1: De- not anywhere on the level that she is. I definitely believe in the Lord. Um, and I would say that I definitely have a personal relationship with him. But I think also going through the prison experience really opened my eyes to a lot of the world. And I saw a lot of different things. And I don't know, I think it's made me more of an open person. And I think a lot of times um, in a lot of religion, there's a lot of judgment on how people should be living their lives and things that you can and can't do. And I just, I don't agree with that way of thinking. I'm just, and I think it's because. I met so many women in there that have been through just a lot of traumatic things and they're not, you know, they're not bad people. They're just made bad choices. So I'm very open, I think, and accepting people of all different types of walks of life just because of what I've been through. And i met a lot of people in rehab and, you know, you know, AA and NA and all that kind of stuff. And I just I think it it made me a lot less of a judgmental person Um, but I definitely have a personal relationship with the Lord. I just, um, I don't follow a lot of the rules as they say, as what (laughs) you think you should, what a Christian,
0: what a good Christian would be. Who, if anyone after the fact said, Jackie, I'm really proud of you.
1: Oh, so Amanda, um, my husband, my brother, my sister, Uh, Sarah so yeah I think pretty much everybody um, you know just because you know uh, and I think even probably like you know a lot of people would be shocked about my story because when they meet me like as you know when I was working at the soda shop for a long time I have this like way about me I'm told that it's just like you look like you know, just like a housewife on a Lifetime TV movie. And it's like not at all what people, people are generally shocked when I share my story because it. I guess I don't fit the mold of what an addict would be.
0: If there are a way for you to just keep taking Oxycontin yeah. or an equivalent narcotic, um, you think you'd still be doing it?
1: Well, I think I'd be dead. I would be dead by now um, because eventually that's what it leads to. You can't sustain, you can't sustain a life like that and it changes you. It changes your personality. You know, you're happy when you're high, but you're an angry, mean person when you're, when you're coming down off of it. And so, um, you're going to lose a lot of your relationships people aren't going to stick around for forever when you're on something like that because you're you know generally a nasty person when you don't have your fix and or you're going to die from it i'm surprised i didn't die and i'm grateful that i didn't um but there's definitely times where my husband would tell me that he would check my breathing because he'd be like you know he knew i was obviously addicted to stuff if it was legal it would have eventually killed me
0: not to mention have a relationship with your boys.
1: Oh, well, yeah. And that's kind of like that whole thing with the personality because it changes you when you're in active addiction. The only thing that you care about is getting that drug or whatever you need to function that day. It's not that you don't love your family and you love your children. You know, I I did what I was supposed to do as a mother. I'd clean the house. I'd still cook dinner. I'd pack lunches, but you know i wasn't a good mother i've carried a lot of guilt about that you know i'm still working on that you know sometimes i still parent from guilt and so um which isn't good either i missed my older son's high school graduation and that was a very very hard thing to to go through and to deal with um you know i'll never get that back i am grateful for the fact that we are very open with each other and i'm able to be present and um you know not just be concerned about, you know, getting that next pill.
0: If you could go back and put your arm around Jackie just as she entered prison, what would you tell her?
1: I would tell her that everything's going to be okay and you're going to have a much better life than you ever thought you had the capacity to, to have. I would just tell her like, I know you're extremely scared right now, and you don't know how you're going to ever make it through this, but you're going to make it through it, and you're going to end up being the best version of yourself than you could have ever dreamed of, and you're a lot stronger than you know, you know, and I would tell her that too, you know, you're going to be free, you're going to free yourself from this, and you're a lot stronger than you think you are.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. Um- If you and I got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) You're hitting me with the deep questions here. (laughs) Oh, my legacy. Um, I would say the legacy would be that she was a tough cookie. She overcame a lot of trauma. She overcame a lot of hard times um she loved and cared a lot for the people in her life and um I don't know I just hope that I'm able to leave behind maybe almost even like just when people remember me the strength that I had and the things that I was able to overcome when a lot of people wouldn't um, because I certainly met a lot of people that have not and a lot of women have passed away that I met, you know, when I was in prison. And so every time I do see that on social media, there's been lots of them who have passed away from that the battle has taken them. Um, you know, as sad it is, it, it's sad to see it, but I'm grateful each, you know, each time I do come across that, that that wasn't me. And I'm one of the lucky ones <laughs> and just the strength that I guess that I, that I have, because a lot of people aren't able to get from the grips of opiates They're, you know, I had something to work for and to get back to, and it was my children and my husband. And, you know, I, I'm grateful, you know, for that. And I'm just grateful that I was able to overcome it because a lot of people can't. It's really hard to overcome opiate addiction.
0: I admire you, I respect you, and I really honor everything you've been through and I'm oh. I'm very grateful that you shared it.
1: Oh, and I'm and thank you so much for listening. Like I said, you were the first person outside of my family to speak to ever really tell my truth to, and it can be nerve-wracking sometimes because you don't know how people are going to take it, you know? And so That's kind of the beauty, I think, about my situation because people don't expect that I've been through something like that. And, you know, I just hope that if one person is out there and, you know, they hear what I've been through and I'm able to touch their life in some sort of way, um, then, you know, that's worth it to me. So thank you for listening and letting me share it.
0: Thank you, Jackie.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you.
0: Jackie Harwood, thank you. I really admire you. I admire your willingness to tell your story. I think it could help a lot of women who are incarcerated right now. And I hope there's some way to connect those people who have never gone back, those people who have made it across the bridge, never to return, uh, who reach back, uh, who try to help. Thank you, Jackie. I really appreciate it.
2: In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Alison and Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp-Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. And take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women.
0: A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported ManListening.com. In her words, the podcast and now Voice Locket. We are right on the cusp of trademarking that name, VoiceLocket.com, and trademarking the wonderful motto or slogan, which is, whose voice do you want to save? Let me know at VoiceLocket.com. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.